0: You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky, a congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ Tradition. We are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice. But from time to time, you'll find guest preachers on this podcast, too. Thanks for listening.
1: Luke's story of the nativity has inspired creatives down through the centuries. Countless poems have been written and music composed. Museums are filled with paintings and sculptures of mangers and shepherds of babes and wise men. We have plays and pageants and more, all in response to this story we find in Luke and also partly in Matthew's gospel. There's something to these 20 verses in Luke's gospel, though, more so than Matthew's rendition, that seems to give us pause. The words are hauntingly melodic, somehow magical, aren't they? The words and the cadence are so familiar. They've been read in cathedrals and chapels, around candles, and in cozy living rooms, too. And were I to have been able to play a clip from that much-beloved Charlie Brown Christmas special, we could have listened to lioness recite those words with quiet reverence and unexpected power. Perhaps you have memories of performing in a children's Christmas pageant. Maybe you donned a bathrobe and carried walking sticks, or maybe you wore angel's wings slightly askew. Perhaps you cradled a baby doll as if it were the Christ child itself. We know the story so well that our mind quickly fills in the spaces between what Luke's gospel says and what we sing in our Christmas carols or we perform in our nativity plays. We never notice, for example, that the gospel does not have a single angel singing in it. No matter how many times we hear the beloved words of Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels sing, there's no singing. But of course they sing, we think, with their harps of gold and their Latin glorias and excelsis deos ringing through the air. How could they not have sung? And those Christmas pageants of years gone by, most of them had an innkeeper, I suspect, Stoically standing at the door of an inn, shaking their head, saying, no room. It's the most dramatic moment of the play when Mary and Joseph are turned away and forced to bed down in a stable, surrounded by sheep played by children, too small for spoken parts. Except there's no innkeeper in Luke's gospel either. Which doesn't seem right, does it? An inn, but no innkeeper. How can this be? And perhaps we need to look with new eyes at this most familiar story. Some of us may even know verse 7 by heart. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn except that's not what I read just a few moments ago, was it? Did you catch the difference? Contemporary scholarship has cast doubts on that long-held translation of the Greek word kataluma, which traditionally has been translated here in the second chapter of Luke as in. And I read from the recently updated New RSV version at its root meaning, the Greek word kataluma means the breaking up of a journey. So we can understand it as a lodging place or an inn. And the word kataluma appears two times in Luke's gospel. Here in the second chapter and then again in chapter 22 as Jesus sends out two disciples with instructions to find a place to observe the Passover. He tells the two to follow a man carrying a jar of water and on arrival at his house to ask, where is the kataluma, where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. The Cataluma, you see, was a guest room in a private home. It wasn't a public inn, whether it's here at the birth of Jesus or at the end of his life when he gathers for a final meal with his friends. And it becomes even more clear that this is Luke's intention when we look at Luke's telling of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, when the Samaritan takes the robbed and battered man that he found on the side of the road, he takes him to recuperate at an inn where he pays for the man's shelter. The Greek word used there for inn is not kataluma, but a different word entirely, pandokion. So with this understanding of a guest room in a private home, that's too crowded for a woman to give birth and not a public inn filled with strangers, the story begins to shift, doesn't it? It loses that economic model of renting a room at a public inn, and now the couple is not at mercy to some cold-hearted innkeeper, but rather they've been taken in, by extended family or neighbors of family whose hospitality has welcomed them and others into their home. It helps us to understand how a typical home in this period in a small Judean village would have been laid out. We're imagining uh, a village in what is now the West Bank of Palestine most likely it would have been a traditional one-room home. And such homes would have had a very pragmatic, split-level design. So, on one end, there would have been a smaller, lower level. And the majority of the room would have been raised on a raised level, and that would be where the family would live, where they'd cook and eat. And connecting this larger family living quarters to the lower level would have been a short set of stairs or steps. And that lower level would have been where the family's animals would have been kept at night. The donkey, maybe a few sheep, perhaps even a cow if they were lucky enough to have a cow. And then during the day, the animals would be taken outside. Now, sometimes a small guest room may have been attached to the end of the home or even built up onto part of the roof, hence the the indication of an upper room in the story of The Last Supper. But the primary living space would have been this larger split-level room on the ground floor. And the guest room, that small room, either adjacent to or above, would have only been used for gas. Now notice, there's no stable in this design either. Animals and humans share one room at night. They keep one another warm. In the winter, the animals on the lower level, a few feet below the upper family living quarters, which is where the manger would have been. Built into the floor, of that upper level, raised enough that a cow or a donkey could reach it if it got hungry. So that's right. The manger would have been in the living room. Now we can imagine the scene much differently than the crushes we may store in our attics and bring down each December. Luke says she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger. So see the scene in your mind's eye. The small guest room is crowded with extended family, and so Mary is given space in that larger living room to give birth. Perhaps she's attended by the community's capable midwife, or at the very least the other women in the house. And then the baby is laid tenderly in the manger that is built into the home there in the living room. If we understand it this way, the story becomes not one of isolation and rejection, no hard-hearted closing of the door to a couple in need, but rather a story which reflects the deeply held traditions of hospitality in Middle Eastern cultures. Joseph and Mary are given shelter in a simple peasant home, one that's overflowing with guests, yet always able to make room for one more. This time, that one more is the Christ child. Make room the story tells us. Making room has become a countercultural act in today's America. News spread this week, you might have seen it, of a busload of Venezuelan migrants sent by the Texas governor from El Paso. They were dropped off at a gas station in Kankakee, Illinois, at 4.30 in the morning and told it was Chicago. They arrived without any announcement, no communication to any official agencies which help refugees. The passengers who had no money or food or warm clothing were not anywhere near Chicago. Kankakee is 60 miles south of Chicago. One busload in a litany of buses and planes filled with individuals seeking shelter and safety and treated inhumanely as pawns in an immigration dispute that few seem to want to solve. Making room should push us to think beyond ourselves beyond our individual lives, and instead to ask questions about community and what it means to belong. The Christmas story pushes us against the dominant narrative of individualism by calling each one of us to imagine how we might make room in the midst of our ordinary lives, however messy and chaotic, they may be. Perhaps this Christmas Eve, making room means simply offering a listening ear to someone who needs to tell their story. Making room could be taking time to see, really see a person who needs us and letting go of our holiday to-do list and instead practicing the hospitality of listening to another human being. Or it could be as simple as pulling up another chair to a crowded dinner table. Or being an ally to our LGBTQ siblings, speaking up when someone is cruel with their words or actions, welcoming someone who has experienced rejection because of who they are. Making room could be as simple as pausing to see the beauty and the dignity. Inherent in that hassled clerk at the store who's working on Christmas Eve as the lines grow long and we make our last-minute gift purchases. Perhaps making room involves us letting go of artificial binaries in the ways in which we approach the pressing issues of our days. Can we make room this day by welcoming nuance and context, of refusing to draw battle lines against those with whom we disagree. There are so many ways to make room in our world. Our beloved story of Christmas is one of making room, of hospitality and welcome, of giving what one has to someone who needs kindness. If you're on Facebook, there's been a post making the rounds this week. Perhaps you've seen it. With the wise words, nobody is going to say, I had such a good time. Deb's baseboards were spotless. Just saying. Making room doesn't depend upon how clean our houses are or how many Christmas lights we've put up outside or how much we've spent on presents this year. Making room comes from the heart as we learn to recognize that the sacred happens in the midst of our lives. And not only in hushed sanctuaries shimmering in candlelight, there is an old Celtic blessing, which expresses this Christmas virtue of hospitality, of making a room. And it goes something like this. We saw a stranger yesterday. We put food in the eating place, drink in the drinking place, music in the listening place, And with the sacred name of the triune God, he blessed us and our house, our cattle and our dear ones. As the lark says in her song, often, often, often goes the Christ in the stranger's guise. This Christmas, may we hear the story anew calling us to make room, make room for the one of whom the angels sing, God with us, Emmanuel. Thanks be to God.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.